Hey everyone, Greg Wells here. Just wanted to take a moment and let you know that we have an app. During lockdown, uh, when everything sort of shut down, we put all our efforts and energies at Wells Performance into digital because we had to. Uh, clearly, I wasn't doing any public speaking around the world, so things needed to change. So we took something that we'd been working on for about three years sort of in the background and brought it to the like urgent forefront of what we were doing. And uh, we put all our efforts and energies into finishing our app. Uh, so I've had a number of PhDs working on this for many years. I've got Ming Cheng Tsai doing data analytics, Jessica Caterini doing the medical side of things, Evan Lewis doing the work on nutrition. I've been doing some stuff on on sleep and Sarah Thompson's been working on the kinesiology side of things. And we have built this app. We, we call it Vivio, V-I-I-V-I-O. That's Latin for life. The website's V-I-I-V.io. So Vivio. And we built an app that tracks your sleep, nutrition, exercise, and mindset using all the latest tools and technologies that are available in uh, iOS and Apple Watch. So it's built currently for Apple Watch and iPhone. It basically allows you to track your sleep, track your nutrition, track your exercise, track your mindset. And then we built an algorithm that gives you individualized recommendations based on your own results. I basically built an app that I wanted to have that had everything in one place. So I don't have to have just my, you know, my workout tracker and then my sleep tracker. And like, it's all over the place. We built one that has everything in one location. We used the latest research to build the scoring mechanisms. We score actually every single one of those areas. Eat, sleep, move, things gets a score out of 10 on a daily basis to give you a sense of how you're doing uh, against the latest research and the top thinking. So we're pretty excited about it. It's uh, definitely for biohackers. It's definitely for people that are really interested in, you know, pushing the limits on their health and well-being and performance, which is probably you if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, introductory, the basic version's free, so you can check it out. Absolutely free. There's no cost. Uh, the pro version gets you the daily tips and access to your history if you want to see how you're doing and improving. So if you want to check it out, you can do so. No cost. If you want to get the pro version, we would be infinitely grateful and uh, just so privileged to have your support on that. So check it out, viiv.io. It's Vivio. We'd love to hear what you think of our new app that we built during lockdown. All right. Hope you're good and please enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Great to have you here and really excited to launch season four of the podcast. Every season, every episode, I do my best to deconstruct excellence, to explore world-class performance, to explore the science of health and really set the stage for all of us as a community to get healthier, improve our well-being and reach uh, our potential and to perform to our absolute limits. And I'm really excited to launch this season with an interview that I did with Dave Asprey, founder and CEO of Bulletproof. Dave is the founder of Bulletproof, and he's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Bulletproof Diet. He's a Silicon Valley investor and technology entrepreneur who spent two decades and more than a million dollars to hack his own biology. He lost 100 pounds without counting calories or excessive exercise, used techniques to upgrade his brain and lift his IQ by 20 points. He lowered his biological age by learning to sleep more efficiently in less time. Learning to do these seemingly impossible things transformed him into a better entrepreneur, a better husband, and a better dad. He is the creator of the wildly pos po popular Bulletproof Coffee, 
host of the number one health podcast, Bulletproof Radio, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Bulletproof Diet. Through his work, Dave provides information techniques and keys to taking control of and improving your biochemistry, your body, and your mind. So they work in unison, helping you to execute at levels far beyond what you'd expect without burning out, getting sick, or allowing stress to control your decisions. You can learn more about Dave at daveasprey.com. And in this conversation, Dave and I uh, explore a lot about breathing. And obviously, that's what I did my PhD on many years ago. So it's, uh, it's kind of cool to go back to the roots and really explore the origins of all of the work that we're doing. It's a long conversation. Uh, we jump back and forth. Dave offers a lot of insights. I offer a lot of insights. So I think it's a really good collaborative way to kickstart season four. So without any further delays, please enjoy my conversation with Bulletproof founder, Dave Asprey. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. You guys already know that I talk with guests who are experts in different areas of life about how you can perform better at everything you do as a human being. And one of the things that you probably haven't done enough of in improving your own performance is resting. And today's episode is all about how to fully rest. Uh, everyone's under stress all the time because there's this whole you know, fear thing that's part of our body, our whole oh, hunger, stress, and maybe you have you know some kind of cold or something, or maybe you're just worried about the end of the world. It could be any of those things, zombies, apocalypses, chainsaws, whatever. We all have stress all the time, including exercise, uh, including just life, right? Life is stress by its definition. But I think most of us have been under more financial stress and emotional stress and just weird stress in the first half of 2020 than in a long time. It affects you physically, mentally, probably financially, probably socially. So I'm bringing in Greg Wells, PhD, and we're gonna talk about health and performance under extreme conditions. I like him because he's a scientist and a physiologist who looks at human limits, makes them understandable, very actionable for you. And he just came out with a new book, in March called Rest, Refocus, Recharge, A Guide for Optimizing Your Life. And it came out right as lockdowns were getting rolled out everywhere. But he's a veteran endurance athlete who is going to teach us on the show today how to slow down so you have energy to speed back up as life gets back on track. Greg, welcome to the show. Dave, thanks so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. So good to be able to talk to you. You are the second translational medicine officer uh, that I've had on the show most recently. Uh, I had the team from Viome on where we were talking about that. And translational medicine or chief translational science officer is a very new role in the world. And you're one of the few out there. And you do this in Toronto at the Hospital for Sick Children. Do they have a hospital for well children, by the way? They should. It's one of my goals, actually, <laughs> that one day I walk into the hospital and it's empty. There you go. <laughs> kind of cool. Like, it's like, so like my career mission is like, oh, there's no one here. I can leave now. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like as a name for a hospital, like like they don't have hospitals for any other children that who aren't sick that I'm aware of. But anyway, uh, you uh, what what makes you a translational medicine guy and an endurance athlete? That's just a weird combination, even even by the standards of people who come on the show. Right. Yeah, it is a bizarre. So I'm I live a balanced life, but it's out at the extremes. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, the way that I ended up in both worlds is I ended up doing a PhD in exercise physiology with a respiratory medicine, a respiratory physiology um, bend to it. So I looked at how 
um, breathing and changing breathing affects sports performance in, in trained sports like rowing, cycling, swimming, running, like where your breathing and movement are linked. And so that was my, yeah, super cool, right? So if you can change your sensitivity to carbon dioxide, you can allow the movement to dictate your performance, not your breathing to dictate the performance. So think rowing, right? You have to breathe in time with the stroke. If it falls out of link, sink, it everything falls apart. Same with swimming. You can't rush to the next breath. You've got to let the technique dictate when you breathe. And so that was all of my PhD. And uh, then I took, as soon as I graduated, I went to Africa for five months and rode my bike and I got back and I couldn't get a job. Funny enough, you can't get a job once you have a PhD. Uh, and I, I ran into someone from the hospital for sick children, Dr. Alan Coates, who ran the exercise lab that tests children with cystic fibrosis, a lung disease. And he's like, oh, you have a respiratory physiology background. Why don't you come and help me run the lab at SickKids? And that, that launched the medical side of things. So I've always sort of had this high-performance sports uh, interest, but then also applied it at the limits for children that are really struggling to be healthy. Uh, and then now what I do is I take all the information that we get about research from research and translate it for people to apply in their lives, regardless of whether you're you know, an elite athlete or whether you're battling illness. Now it's just for everybody. We want everyone to benefit from the knowledge, and that's what we do. That is, uh, it, it's fascinating to be able to apply that to kids because breathing and cystic fibrosis are, are so important. It seems like there's a, a renaissance in in breathing. I, I started learning about this from doing yoga. I did um, Art of Living breathing exercises every day for five years and met Shri Shri Ravi Shankar. I actually wrote a foreword for his, his lead trainer's book. And it turns out there's uh, so much that happens there in holotropic breathing. Stan Groff uh, has has come and actually done an event with the Human Performance Institute, the training institute that I, I started. And I found that that I've reached some very altered states from breathing that are unknown. And last night I had my lips taped closed so I'd breathe through my nose as I was sleeping. But I kind of find, oh, and of course, putting, you know, covering one nostril versus the other. So I've gone pretty deep in biohacking for all that stuff. But I don't feel like there's a definitive guide, like do this kind of breathing to get this result in this circumstance. And even though I'm pretty good at what I do as a biohacker, you know, like a guy who, who kind of created that, um, I don't necessarily know what breath to choose for what time. Do you? Um, so any scientist that tells you that they have a definitive answer to something is probably like lying. So I'll say like we- Oh, did you just I, attack the WHO? No, I, I, I absolutely did not. Because you're not allowed to do that on podcasts. They ban <laughs> no. podcasts for that, just to be clear. Anything they yeah. say is definitive, but all the other scientists, I agree with what you say. Like what we do is we learn as we go, right? We expand our knowledge. Anyway, so like even in my PhD defense, I had two like of the most decorated PhD researchers in you know physiology, and they started arguing about breathing. And that wasted 20 minutes of my PhD defense, which was great because they weren't questioning me. They were questioning each other. <laughs> and I just awesome. let it go. But um, so like, here's an extreme, like if you, if there's a scent, there's a, the medulla in the brain, which is where we control breathing is actually linked to the center of the brain that is also involved in stress regulation. So if you take long, slow, deep breaths, you know that you can calm the body down. We know that you can actually feel it. If anyone just takes three deep breaths right now, you're going to relax. The other end of that spectrum is if you want to activate the nervous system, you can exhale really hard. That's why tennis players, for example, scream and exhale when they hit the ball. It activates the nervous system and increases your 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 stress and your explosiveness. In between those two extremes are you know all the other things that we can do with our breathing. I too have entered into some very strange 
uh, altered states through through breathing, where I was literally, I felt like I was on LSD, and I've never done LSD, so I don't know, yeah. but I assume that that's what it feels like, uh, which is pretty wild. And I've also done the whole Wim Hof method, where you use breathing to heat yourself mm -hmm. up when you're immersed in. It's been on the show, yeah. yeah. That's what's uh, crazy. You really go places, right? Yeah, like I spent 20 minutes in Lake Z Geneva in Zurich in December in a snowstorm with Ian Lopatin from Spiritual Gangster. We were just like hanging out. Like I could stay there indefinitely once I learned how to do that breathing pattern. So when we use breathing, uh, it, it, breathing for many people is just unconscious. And that's a good thing because it's regulated and you breathe and you stay alive. But you can also use breathing to improve your performance. You can use breathing to perform better in sports. You can use breathing to perform better when you're doing public speaking, you can use breathing to calm yourself down so that you respond to people instead of react to them when they say something that you disagree with. So it's excellent in like meetings and stuff like that. Like it's, it's a very, very powerful tool for us. And uh, it's probably one that we just think that we take for granted. So I think it's definitely something you can explore and learn a lot from. Okay. If you don't know which breath to use when, <laughs> what's the best breath? So that's biohacking, right? Like, so it's the best breath to use for the task at hand. And go. so like right now we can be like, if I need to relax and obviously it's slow, deep breathing. If I'm trying to fall asleep, it's, it's slow, deep breathing. If I'm trying to meditate, it's bringing my mind into uh, the moment so I can focus on my breath. If I'm trying to get psyched up for sports, maybe I want to breathe a little bit harder to energize myself. If I want to deliver a line better when I'm speaking, maybe slow down your speaking so that you can actually inhale as you deliver that sentence like I just did there. Um, so yeah, there's, it, it, there's no one best breath. It's using breath to do what you need to do at a higher, higher level. No one best breath. All right. My favorite breath right before I go to sleep is called the Ujjayi breath. And I've written about that in a couple of the books. And I rarely take more than three minutes to go to sleep. I used to take a lot longer. It's not because I'm exhausted. It's because I know how to go to sleep. But if it takes more than three minutes or there's anything slowing me down, I feel like if I do maybe five Ujjayi breaths, I wake up the next morning. Um, is there a more powerful sleep-inducing breath that you know of? I don't know of a more powerful sleep-inducing breath than Ujjayi breathing, which I'm learning about as I'm getting back into yoga, as I'm mm. getting a little bit older and really starting to dig into that, um, getting out of you know hardcore endurance sports and sort of just using yoga and breathing to dissipate tension throughout throughout the body. What I've been trying to do with regards to that practice around falling asleep is using breathing in conjunction with uh, settling of the mind and bringing the mind back into the moment, actually letting the mind relax and turn off, which is the hardest thing for me. And when I am able to bring my attention into the moment and shut off my mind in conjunction with that breathing technique, then I just feel so good. And I, that's what creates the altered states. That would, that's what enables you to drop into that deep sleep so quickly. Uh, to recover and regenerate faster. We know that deep sleep is so important, right? So mm -hmm. getting into that state faster is better. So I've just been playing with it in, in that mind-body yeah. connection. And that's where I've been trying to teach my 10-year-old daughter because she struggles with sleep. And yeah. she absolutely loves it. So you can even teach this to kids. Like they pick up on it really quick, which is kind of neat. They, they really do. Uh, my daughter was having a terrible time at exactly 10 going to sleep. And I ended up giving her the, the audio uh, app for Dr. Barry Morgulon, who's a, a master of Chinese energy medicine, who's been on the show a couple of times and a, a dear friend. 
uh, and one of 12 living grandmasters of this esoteric Chinese thing. So you think, why would my daughter listen to this? And it's because every one of these 15, 20 minute things is breathing with a story. And it's not meant for kids, it's meant for adults, but the story is, you know, your energy is going to the middle of the earth, it's going to the heavens, and now you're riding on a carpet and, and the stuff. And you go into weird altered states, I feel electricity zipping out of my body from it. It's very powerful stuff. She, of her own accord, she said, after the first week, I said, do you want to do the Dr. Barry exercises again? And she said, you don't have to ask me anymore, daddy. I'm going to do these every night. I decided, I, I promised myself I'll do them for the whole month. Okay, this is a 10-year-old without yeah. any encouragement. And at the end of the month, I said, what do you think? And she said, I promised myself I'm going to do them every day for a year. And she did it. That's Without impressive. any encouragement, no rewards, nothing other than I like breathing when I go to sleep because now I can go to sleep. And there's you know, something like 50 or 60 different ones. She learned all the different little ones. And I was blown away. But that's what breathing does for kids when they finally learn. But so I, I love it. You're doing that. I'm teaching my son right now. We're doing Tai Chi in the morning. He's 10 now. Yep. And it's all about the breath, right? Totally. And imagine what we're going to teach them in terms of like emotional regulation, right? And understanding that you can actually take control of how you feel. Okay. And as they progress through those teenage years, 12, 13, 14, 15, when emotions are all over the place and yeah. everything is so reactive that they can understand that they can actually control how they feel. Hopefully that carries through their entire lives and puts them in a very different place when they're adults, right? Because then we're all in this ability to, we're all end up with this ability to control our emotions, to put ourselves in the right state we need to be in to do what we want to do at the highest possible level. It's so powerful and so cool. I love it that you're starting so young with, with that, with your daughter and son. That's great. You also, as a respiratory guy and just doing medicine and all, you're looking at feedback systems like you almost certainly using capnometers. You're measuring CO2 that's coming out of people. Uh, and I have a capnometer behind me for feedback. It, and most people listening, even to this show, you probably haven't heard me say that word before. But yeah, you can actually learn to change your CO2 and oxygen ratios by looking at them just like almost anything else. But when you provide that kind of feedback to kids, something interesting happens. I've met probably four or five adults, you know, people, you know, over 40 uh, who are just unusually uh, tuned in. Uh, they're, they're people who are doing good things in their life. They're unusually happy. Uh, they're making a mark in the world. And we sit down at dinner or whatever. And, and you're just like, well, okay, this, this person has a spark. And they'll just mention, you know, Dave, you're into that biofeedback. When I was a kid, my mom or my dad worked at this lab and I did some biofeedback when I was eight, when I was 10, when I was 12. And, you know, I never thought about it, but I think it made a big difference. So this stood out to me as just massive outliers. The, the people are just noteworthy. And it's, oh, yeah, I did this when I was a kid. So I, I don't know, Greg, I, I think you're doing the right thing. You know, it's <laughs> interesting. Like, that's why I, I love, you know, wearable tech. I've got an Apple Watch on. I've got an Oura ring on, and yeah. as you do. Um, and I think the data that we're getting on ourselves is so fascinating. Yeah. And I don't love having electrical devices on my body mm -hmm. per se, but I do like wearing this ring what, like for a week, a month, just to sort of check in on, on how we're doing so I can understand my deep sleep, my REM sleep, my breathing rate when I'm sleeping, my body temperature, which I've been tracking very carefully in this COVID-19 era, because we know that, you know, plus 0.5 degrees seems to predict an illness a few days before you get it. Um, and I think that when we have this information about our heart rate, about our heart rate variability, about our respiratory rate about our CO2 levels, that it gives us great information. And 
I think that the more we understand our body, the more that we can take control of our body. It's not just this thing that we're occupying for a period of time. It's it's something that, that we can adapt and that we can change and that we can help grow and that we can make better. And with that feedback, with that information, that's how we course correct. And it's a feedback system, just like you said. Um, and the interplay between feed, feed forward from the brain and feedback from the physiology is basically, you know, that's human physiology. That's that entire field of study. Uh, and there's just, it's amazing We've, that we all now have access to laboratory quality data using this, these wearable devices that are exponentially improving every single day. It's so cool. It is cool. Uh, they're not helping, though, with something you mentioned earlier, and I want to ask you about this correlation. So you are a super high-performance athlete. You did the world record-setting 8,000-mile cycling expeditions across Africa, uh, Ironman Canada. Uh, so you're kind of at the upper tier there, and you work with super high-performing Olympic world champion athletes and all that. I find that people who are attracted to intense endurance sports are quite often the people who have the hardest time turning off the voice in their head. Do you think you were attracted to those sports because you had a meaner, louder voice in your head than average or because you're an ADHD or is there something else going on there? Um, were you self-medicating with exercise? <laughs> we could go really deep into that. So this <laughs> pandemic has served as a time when um, I've actually been asking myself those questions, Dave. Uh -huh. And, uh, I've had a lot of time to think about like, why do I do that stuff? Like I was a competitive swimmer growing up. So I loved swimming mm -hmm. and I just got quite good at it. And I ended up at sort of all my friends made the Olympics. I didn't that kind of, that kind of level. I ended up commentating Olympics, which was amazing and super fun. I think I had more fun than they did, but, um, <laughs> And then subsequent to that, after my PhD, you know, loving cycling and having been to Africa and loving Africa, I heard about the Tour d'Afrique bike race. So I went and did that. And that was more of an expedition and, and a life experience. The choice to go do Ironmans a few times and a couple marathons and climbing Chimborazo Volcano and going to South America with my friend Ray Zahab and running from um, the Pacific to the Atlantic, or he did it, he ran and I did a lot of the physiology that what I found there is that when I am doing ultra endurance sports and I get to that point where I am tired, I'm exhausted, I'm in a lot of pain, that is one of the only times when my mind actually shuts off. And so yeah. I love it because I actually find that it's meditative and it's a chance for me to, you know, relax my, my mind. Subsequently, I've been doing a lot of work around inner engineering and following the program from Sadhguru around, uh, learning to calm my mind, not through exercise, yeah. but through breathing, through attentional control. And that's where the deep uh, discoveries are being made about tension, about, uh, you know, all of the the true insights into how you actually achieve the state of being in the present moment, of being happy, of experiencing pure joy that all of us are capable yeah. of experiencing at any given instant. Uh, so it's it's been quite the evolution going from mind to body, discovering the emotions uh, and landing in a, in a very, very interesting place. So uh, but you're absolutely right. Like you hit it right on. I was absolutely self-medicating with ultra endurance work and I still love it. I still like to do it, but it's different now. It's a choice. Whereas, um, yeah, it's a choice and it's a it's a process in conjunction with the mental training that's going along with it. I think it's a lot more powerful now than it was before. Uh, the reason I'm asking is because even though I was 300 pounds, I was also uh, into cycling in a big way. 
you know, Dave Scott was one of my heroes when I was you know, 12 or something like this. Um, long time people recognize him as, you know, the Iron Man guru of whatever the 80s. And uh, I, I was the only way I could relax. You know, if you're going fast enough on a mountain bike, you, if you don't just stop thinking, you'll hit a rock and die. So you stop thinking. Yeah. And when you're exhausted and you're pushing everything, there's a state, right? And since then, I've I've done so much neurofeedback and breathing exercises, and I'm also a high altitude mountaineering kind of guy. I've actually climbed in Ecuador, and I, I also found there there was peace from that. The exhaustion, a little bit of hypoxia, the same thing in Tibet, and like you just go to these places and they're beautiful, but they're kind of expensive and kind of risky, uh, and certainly time wise not that efficient, uh, but also worthy. Uh, and, and so I've I've kind of gone through that over time, but I did recognize it uh, like. I had a family member come and visit from uh, from Europe, and I'm in Canada. I'm near, actually also up in Canada. I'm in BC, and it's during the rainy season, and <laughs> she couldn't go exercise for a few days. And this is someone who runs, you know, five miles a day, and, and it's like it's it's too wet. I I I'm, and you could literally see like a like a junkie, right? Not right. in a, a bad way, uh, but you know, just like 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 crawling out of their skin. Uh, before finally, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to get soaked and be really cold and you know fall on the ice or whatever. I'm I'm out, and uh, that means to me that there is some kind of an addiction or some self medication, uh, and I don't know if it's a good thing. Do you think it is? Well, the it is an addiction because it's endorphins. Your brain produces yeah. the same actual chemicals that you can take exogenously through cocaine or morphine or or whatever else every time that you exercise. So there is absolutely no question that it is addictive. Uh, there are a number of, well, we know so many benefits from exercise and whether mm -hmm. it's yoga or it's run, it's running, or if it's, um, you know, strength training, there's benefits and they're all different and they all do yeah. wonderful things for us. I believe that, and, and this is hard for me to say as you know, an extreme athlete is like, I believe that anything in the extreme is probably not good for us. <laughs> we know that, you know, this is like the hard, that's probably the hardest thing I've ever said in public in my life. But anyway, um, we know for in the immune system, for example, right now that there's a J-shaped relationship between exercise and immune health. And if you do no exercise, your immune health is worse. You're more at risk of respiratory infections. We know that a moderate level of exercise actually improves mm -hmm. uh, your resistance to illness. 75% fewer colds and flus for people who exercise on a daily basis. 24 to 40% lower risk of cancer for people who walk every day. Uh, but then at the extreme levels, we know that if you're exercising to the point of exhaustion consistently over time, that that is far worse than not exercising at all for your risk for immunity. So what we need to find for each of us is this moderate level where we're healthy, we're um, getting fitter, we're getting stronger, we're getting more mobile um, without putting that excessive stress and strain on all of us. And now that I think back about it too, the evolution in sports that happened from training in the 80s and 90s when I was a, a young athlete coming up to being a physiologist in the you know 1990s and the 2000s was that we went from high volume training, just whoever survived the training was the one who made the Olympic team. Like if you didn't get injured and sick, you win, congratulations. But now it's very different. It's actually like you're trying to break a world record consistently in practice. And doing that through massage therapy, through amazing food, through um, recovery regeneration techniques, through cold, through heat, and all of these other modalities that enable you to get actually radically improve your health as you are training. 
it's a longer process. And the benefit is like we're seeing careers now going into their, people are now competing at a high level into their 40s. People are breaking world records over oh, yeah. decades, not just over a three-year period. So I think it's a much healthier approach when we when we do it this way that you know you and I are talking about, yeah. where we incorporate these other factors, these like rest, recover, regenerate, all these sorts of things into our lives. And it's been a huge adaptation for me, you know, mm -hmm. coming out of us as a young athlete in the 80s and 90s into ultra endurance sports and these, you know, long expeditions into a place where I'm trying to just be healthy and be a great role model for my kids that are coming up and to lead people into a, a new place now that we have this information so we can all as a world be healthy and high performing yeah. and reach all reach our potential. It it reminds me of uh, the Bryan brothers uh, have been on you know tennis uh, two brothers who play uh, tennis doubles world champions playing way longer than they're supposed to and winning and then we see the same thing Nick Foles has been on the show uh, and we've become friends and you know he's okay how do I put as much recovery tech wherever I'm going to be as I possibly can so that I can continue doing what I love to do. And, and it seems like it's working. And even Mark Sisson, who's been on the show several times, an, another friend, a former Ironman athlete and ultra endurance, you know, really a tough guy uh, who just wrote a book about, oh, chronic cardio is bad for you. I was doing it wrong and it made me older than it than it probably needed to. And he's completely changed how he, how he trains to be less intense and getting more results. So what you're saying makes sense. So this, this thing has happened, but it maybe isn't apparent to people who just you know, pick up a magazine or they're still kind of stuck in this mindset, I'm just going to grind it out when grinding it out probably wears some things away. What in your mind is the best way other than breathing, obviously, unless that is your answer, uh, to undo the grind? So, so we're all stressed right now. So what, what's the recovery tech that's that's most recovery oriented? Uh, it's just, a, you know, it's been we've gone through this global stress response, fight or flight, like literally every single person on the planet has been in fight or flight for about three months. And that's this global pandemic. It's the the Black Lives Matter revolution, which is wonderful to see finally getting some traction and, and everyone's waking up to that mm -hmm. um, necessity for us to combat and become anti combat systematic racism and be anti-race. Like we've had a lot go on. And I think that the way that we can all, you know, recover and regenerate and get re-energized to make the world a better place. Like, I don't want us going back to normal. I want us to reimagine the future. Uh, and if you're talking about like recovery tech, I think the number one thing we can all do, believe it or not, is so simple as to sleep. I think that if we're, if we're <laughs> so sleeping boring. well, that's, it's so boring. It's probably not the, not the tactic that you were looking for, but I think that sleep no. is a very powerful tool for all of us. I think I'm super fascinated also by the research that's coming out recently on the effect of music especially on mental health. We know that the regions of the brain that are downregulated by depression are upregulated by music. So mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the effect of music on the brain um, in terms of recovery from long-term aerobic oxidative exercise. I'm also fascinated by antioxidants and anti-inflammatory eating. I think that's a fascinating approach for all of us to consider right now. Uh, and also then just balancing exercise. We know that we don't now, if we want to be healthy, we can do some cardio. It's totally fine. But if you mix that in with some strength development, then you go, you get both AMP kinase, which lengthens your lifespan, and you optimize mTOR, which optimizes your health span. And so when we mix and match exercise, I think we're in a better place than just doing one thing. Um, so I think those are just a few things to get people started and okay. ideas like how to recover, regenerate. But there's lots that we can do. Uh, sleep's an interesting one. Uh, I have, for much of my life, been anti-sleep. Uh, and 
it's just that look, the world is full of so much interesting stuff. There's so much knowledge and information and stuff to do uh, that, you know, I, I want to go play with all this knowledge and innovate. And, and that's you know, what I'm here to do. So I would be probably since I was about 10, I would just stay up as late as I could reading. And I learned to read at 18 months, which is not good for your brain and your movement, by the way. Do not do that to yeah. your kids would be my recommendation <laughs> for people listening who have young children. Like, let, let them learn at a normal time so they'll move a little bit before they read. So I would just like suck knowledge in uh, and I'd say I could read or sleep. I will read. Mm. And, and that's not healthy at all. And then it's like, well, OK, I could have my day job in Silicon Valley and I could have like a side gig teaching at the University of California. So I'll just give up on sleep. And of course, that does wear you down. It's not good for you. And I even started the blog and saying, you know, here's ways to hack your sleep. And almost every sleep hack post out there is a, is a, an echo of those original sleep hacking posts. Yeah. People. You know, the the standard dark in your room. Uh, I started a company, True Dark, with the the glasses that blocks the right spectrums, not just blue. Uh, in fact, not even blocking all blue in order to manipulate sleep. I've doubled my deep sleep. So I've I've transformed like you to say, okay, now it's necessary. Before I was like, if I could eliminate it entirely, I would. How you know how lucky if you're one of those people who could never sleep. Uh, where it, it's become a part of my recovery. I track it every night and I I look at ROI and efficiency of sleep. And for me. Mm -hmm. It's been a big part of my transformation to look at sleep as 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 important as food. Uh, so that was like a 180 degree thing, which even for me, it's kind of hard to say. Like earlier, you're saying it you know, may be too much in an extreme. Um, so I'm going to just double down what you said about sleep. It's the simplest thing to do, except, well, most people right now, even people listening to this who might have an unfair advantage. You guys see what I did there? That's a product <laughs> name for Bulletproof, one of the things I created. <laughs> yeah. um, but if they have an unfair advantage because they have some some knowledge from experts like you, there's still a hard time sleeping. So let's zoom in on that one first. So it, your whole book, Rest, Refocus, Recharge, and I ask you what you could do. A number one thing you came up with was sleep. Okay, so I'm in agreement with you. But okay. what would you do to optimize sleep during the pandemic or as people are emerging from it? So the number one thing we did as a family was we stopped using a morning alarm. And it's been an absolute game changer. We use a bedtime alarm, but not a morning alarm. We wake up wow. when we wake up. And that's been a really, like, it's just a wild thing. And initially, when I first started, I was sleeping so much. I don't think I had any idea how tired I was. Because I, I'm doing a lot of public speaking, flying all over the world. I was yeah. getting ready to launch my, my book right into a pandemic when they shut every bookstore in the world. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, whatever. Um, so we now don't use morning alarms. And I am I started sleeping a lot. I'm actually back down where I'm waking up pretty naturally between five and six every day. So I get up and I'm, I head out to the beach and work out. Uh, my daughter, though, she's 10 years old, 11. She's sleeping so much. And mm -hmm. she's grown like two inches since the pandemic hit. Adam is sort of like me. He's a bit of an early riser. He's five. And Judith is a bit more variable because she's starting to get back into running now after two years of being injured. And so she's training a bit harder. So sleeping in a little bit more to adapt to, to that. So we just stopped using the morning alarm and going to, I now want to go to bed early enough that I can wake up naturally to get done what I need to do and hit my meetings and those sorts of things without needing an alarm. So I do set an alarm, but it's the last possible second where it can be set and not get fired. So let's say I have a 9 a.m. meeting, I'll set it for 8.30, knowing full well right. that I'm probably going to get up between 5 and 6. But, you know, if I happen to need that extra three hours and my body needs it, it'll get it. And that's been the biggest change we've made. It's been so powerful for us. I'm so happy you said that. Uh, one of the huge benefits that I believe is going to come uh, from the pandemic 
is actually parents noticing that their kids are nicer and healthier and happier when they don't have to wake up in the middle of the night. It, it's unnatural for kids to wake up to be to school at 8.30, especially young kids. Uh, they should be starting school at 9.30. And yes, it's inconvenient as a parent, but newsflash, being a parent is inconvenient. That's what you signed up for. Right. I mean, you used to have kids. Everything you do for your kids is probably not what you would choose to do if you didn't have kids. That's just how, that, that that's it. So, uh, I'm actually in the process of, of looking at schools based on start time. And the later the start mm -hmm. time, the higher the schools are ranked for my kids because I know when they sleep. And the pandemic has been fantastic for them just because they get to sleep in. Uh, my son asked to be homeschooled so he could sleep in. He's 10. You know, mm -hmm. my daughter is 13. She wants to go to school. And we finally told her, look, we will take you to school, but we're tired of waking up in the middle of the night to get you ready for school. So if you want the right to go to your school... <laughs> You have to get yourself up and have your mm -hmm. lunch ready and everything ready. We're going to wake up in time to drive you. Yeah. Right. And and that's it. And you know, she said, OK, I'll sign up for that. And suddenly she was responsible and she did it. But, man, I think it takes it out of them. So thank you for for mentioning the effect on kids of, of just getting enough sleep during the pandemic. So that's something most parents, most people listening, you haven't done a gratitude exercise for my kids just got three months of quality sleep that they would have otherwise never had. That's kind of legit. So it I is. It's really it interesting. Way. And also, so as you know, athletes around the world have been blocked from training basically for the mm -hmm. last few months and the Olympics got canceled and then, and then moved. I was chatting to Ben Titley, who's the head coach for the Canadian swim team. He's got a group of athletes coming back in and there's a group of older athletes and a group of younger athletes. He said the really interesting thing that's happened is that since they've come back, he's noticed that the younger ones suddenly all grew. They're all totally rested. They've yeah. been sleeping. And he said, this is this weird, unusual thing that I never could have programmed because swimmers get up, they train twice a day. You're in the pool by 5.30, 6 o'clock. That's been wiped out. And so there's all these really weird positive adaptations that have happened. And you know, not to minimize the fact that people are dying and have died and, and are still sick. Um, but I think that there's definitely something that we can take out of this in terms of like we're not commuting in the morning. We've we've got this time mm -hmm. and let's reimagine how we want to feel in the future. Do we want to fill our lives back up with all of these activities and all this busyness? Or do we want to be really intentional about health first, happiness first, joy first, connection first, and then pick and choose the things to drop into our lives to actually make our lives better with intention instead of compulsion. And I think that there was a lot of compulsion and burnout happening right before the pandemic hit that I think we can avoid if we're careful about it as we emerge from the pandemic and get back to a more hopefully open um, life around the world. So just okay. uh, I, I'm echoing everything that you're saying there. I couldn't agree with you more. I, that that makes so much sense. And you and I, though, okay, I live on Vancouver Island. Uh, the pandemic was uh, particularly tough because I had to feed the pigs more often so I could eat really good bacon. I am right. like, <laughs> so I'm like, like, it, like, I realized I already lived a life of social isolation when I'm home. It's just that the 150 days of the year that I'm out speaking, um, signing books and, you know, working with my portfolio of companies, that's not happening right now, uh, just like you. But there are 50 million unemployed people right now um, who you're saying, and maybe we're going to focus on our health and happiness. And they're saying, maybe I'm going to focus on, you know, not going bankrupt and having a place to live. hundred percent. And I'm, I mean, my heart goes out for that. I'm working on saving as many jobs as I can and, you know, d doing all I can to make people healthier and happier and, you know, get restaurants so we can actually have people sitting next to each other and overcome fear and all that. Um, because restaurants actually employ a lot of people, guys. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I'm I, I'm sort of torn. If if I put myself in that situation, and I have been in that situation, I you know, I used to scoop ice cream for a living. I welded truck frames for a while. I put parts in boxes for a couple of years. So I, I've had you know real labor jobs when I was younger. Um, and I, I know what it's like to you know have you know, fifty bucks left for the let rest two weeks of the month, and you're going to buy a bag of rice because I've actually done that. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with the stress of that? Like, how do you focus on health and happiness and recovery when you're economically like really at the edge of what you can do? I think that we've there is some really interesting research that was that was published a while ago that showed that happiness there's a correlation between happiness and financial stability up to about seventy five thousand dollars a year yes. beyond which. There is no further correlation, and you and I both know very wealthy people who are miserable. Um, so I think that I fully recognize that if you have lost your job, if you are economically struggling right now, further to take it another step, if you're confined at home with an abusive partner or parent, like that oh, is yeah. also a nightmare that we are seeing, um, certainly in a number of places in Toronto, according to some friends of mine who are police officers. So like, there's a lot of hardship that's come through this. And so if that's the case, then we're not even we're not at a point where we can talk about health and well-being and joy and happiness. We're just simply trying to survive. And I believe that our responsibility, if you're listening to this, is to do the very best you can at what you're great at. Therefore, if you do that, it's quite likely that you're going to generate some sort of economic benefit. So if I do what I'm great at, if I go out and I do public speaking and books like that generates work for lots of people around and one of the things I'm most proud of in the companies that I've run, we've laid nobody off. So that's like my biggest accomplishment, I think, in this pandemic is we have not actually laid anyone off. It's been super hard, but we've gotten through it and we're going to come out better. Um, it also forces a pivot. And the companies that have been able to pivot very rapidly into digital uh, have set themselves up, I believe, for a better future, which ultimately will lead to more. So I believe that we're sort of like in 2008, there's a number of things that happened that led to some exponential growth for certain organizations. I think we're very much going to see that as well. We just need to get through this together, support each other like crazy, and as a community, you know, do what we need to do to get through this time, have food on the table, create the jobs again, get back, get back to taking care of keeping everyone safe, and that way we can open up as fast as possible to get our economy going again, hoping that the new economy will be different will be better, will be safer, will be, and we will be able to craft a better future together where people are um, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually in a better place. Uh, it's uh, it's definitely a time of rebuilding, and I'm with you there. And I know that it's possible because I've read, you know, the the sages and, you know, done, done some very deep spiritual work and all that. It's possible for, and I've met sadhus, you know, on the the slopes of mountains uh, in the in the middle of nowhere in Nepal, uh, who literally don't have any possessions but a bowl where mm -hmm. people put donations or food, and they actually they're in very altered states, but they appear to be happy. <laughs> and it, it when I, I first saw this, I was you know a younger man, and it was it was a little bit disturbing, like I was like what. What gives them the right to be happy when they have nothing? It, it was almost a sense of injustice. Like, you know, they, they could clearly have a something, but the, the fact they chose not to was almost an affront uh, to my uh, my little ego at the time. And now, though, I, I know it's possible, but I don't know how to guide someone who's you know, really financially there other than uh, guide them to be, uh, you know, in a, in a more satisfied or less stressed state anyway, other than what you've talked about, you know, breathing. Uh, so breathing is free. 
uh, you know, cold showers are free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the very basic recovery technologies, it, it seems like the, if you have no time at all, it, it seems like you should follow what uh, Winston Churchill used to do. Um, during World War II, uh, uh, he would take a nap every afternoon, mm -hmm. right? And and he would like put on his pajamas and have this whole ritual and take an hour-long nap. And people say, how dare you have a nap in the middle of a war being on? And he looked back at them, and I'm paraphrasing, and said something like, do you think I could do this if I didn't take a nap every day? So mm -hmm. if you're highly stressed and, and you're really worried – Doing a little bit more to calm down and recover, even though, yeah, things are actually, when you look at the facts, they're they're rough right now. But to take a, uh, the free stuff that makes you feel more powerful, more gratitude, more hope is probably more nourishing and, and makes you more resilient than not. But I haven't lived through it. Does that seem like good advice? It's great advice. And I think it, there's some neurophysiology to back that up. If we okay. take some time to decompress, if we go for the walk, if we sit in the park, if we you know, get in the cold shower, if we just sit on, you know, and meditate or read a great fic fiction book, what happens, I've discovered recently in studying the brain a little bit more, is that right now, you and I are both in beta brainwave mode, we're hustling, we're concentrating, we're, we're th figuring things out as we move through this conversation and beta brainwaves at a certain frequency. When we relax and slow down, and calm our, our brains down, the brainwaves actually slow in frequency. They, they literally slow down. If you put electrodes yeah. all over the brain, you would see the electrical activity in the brain decrease. If it decreases a little bit, you end up in alpha brainwaves. That's when we can be mm -hmm. strategic. That's when we can reflect. That's when we can learn. It's a very different, you can't actually learn. You can't think strategically. You can't reflect. If you're in hustle, 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 go, 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 we have to slow down. If you slow down even further into theta, which is when you're meditating or you're standing in the shower with water going off of your head or you're driving long distances and daydreaming, which you shouldn't do, but it happens. And that's when you get the eureka moments, um, the new insights. That theta brainwave state where the brain is super relaxed is when we're creative. It's when we problem solve and it's when we have agile thinking, when you come up with new solutions to problems. And so I, I think that it's almost counterintuitive that by doing less, it opens us up to actually being able to do more. And now that we're sort of emerging from this, one of the things I really want to do this summer is to give myself a lot of permission just to have the space to sit and think or the space to sit and contemplate, the space to sit and reflect, to make sure that the future that we're crafting is different and or better than, than the one in the past. So uh, yeah, that there's a lot of neurophysiology to back up the idea of just simply like, if you are super stressed, the, you know, the, the thing that you probably want to do the least is to slow down and just go for an easy walk somewhere because you think you just have to keep going to push to get yeah. to the next thing. When in fact, the solution, the insight, the eureka moment, the opportunity might be lying somewhere else. And you can't see that when you're in stress. We can only see those opportunities when we slow down. And by slowing down, it probably doesn't even mean listening to this podcast, which is a pretty good thing if you're in that situation. Thank you for listening. It doesn't mean watching Netflix or playing a video game. It, it actually means slowing down uh, the, the meditating or just the walking without something in your ears, uh, making you think about stuff, which is also a difficult thing to do. I, I considered putting out an episode of Bulletproof Radio that was, you know, the, the value of contemplation. Guys, here's one hour episode with just silence. <laughs> so yeah. Leave the headphones in. <laughs> I'll tell you when you're done. All That's you have right. to do I is got you. see how long you last. I'm not going to do that. But yeah. I thought of it. 
Just tell uh, everyone you're listening to this podcast. They'll leave you alone. It's got a free hour. Put the headphones in. You're free and clear. We got you. They'll let you know yeah. when it's over. Great an idea. Hour with, an hour with your own head. So I, I like your uh, I, I like your advice there. It's uh, it, it's interesting. And I also talked about naps with uh, Winston Churchill. And you have some pretty strong thoughts about naps for recovery. Tell me your theories about napping. So napping is so powerful as I... Uh, discovered in through researching sleep for this book and the previous book as well. Um, you know, I've always used naps as an athlete, but I remember sometimes I would wake up from a nap and feel horrible. Like sometimes they were great. Yeah. I'd go and swim at night and crush it. And other nights I'd wake up and be nauseous for hours. Um, and other times I've taken like quick cat naps and felt amazing. So I'm like, what was going on there? So it turns out that there's two types of naps that work and one type of nap that does not. So the two types of naps that work, that there's the short power nap, 20 minutes or less. So set an alarm. And what happens there is you wake up out of REM or stage one sleep, like very light sleep. So the brain actually hasn't started washing itself out. The glial lymphatic system hasn't started to work. The neurons haven't shrunk. The cerebral spinal fluid hasn't washed out the brain yet. It's just literally a reset for you. And the short power nap has been shown to improve mental performance, concentration, alertness, focus. The other type of nap that works is the full sleep cycle, sleep cycle nap, which is around 75 to 90 minutes, and you do not use an alarm, so you wake up naturally. And that not only gets the brain benefits, but also physiological benefits, because a little pulse of growth hormone is released, which gives you physiological recovery in addition to mental recovery. This also clears out the hippocampus to keep you learning. So if you're studying repeatedly, the 20-minute nap helps you also to keep learning over time. So short power nap, 20 minutes less, use an alarm, good for the brain. Full sleep cycle nap, 75 to 90 minutes, good for brain and body. That is typically what um, athletes will do before a game in the evening. They'll have the afternoon nap, 75 to 90 minutes, and then play their game at night because it's good for the body. The type of nap that does not work is 30 to 60 minutes long when you wake up out of deep sleep, when you are, your brain is repairing, when your brain is washing itself out, when the glial lymphatic system is activated. And so that's when you wake up and you have sleep inertia when you feel horrible for hours. So power nap, full sleep cycle nap, avoid that 70, sorry, 60 to 30 to 60 minute middle zone nap that makes you feel awful. I've always thought that if you needed to take a nap during the day to stay focused, that it's just because you're either bad at sleeping or bad at eating. Well, there's definitely, um, if you haven't slept well, then the nap is definitely going to help you to catch up on that one. And obviously there's this huge effect of the foods that you're eating on whether or not you need to nap. And um, I don't like, unlike you, I want to you know, squeeze out every ounce out of life that I possibly yeah. can to be awake for every single second because I don't want to miss anything. It's like so awesome. Um, but I will use a nap if I've done a hard workout, for example, and I'm tired yeah. or if I'm like, if I can, I've got a speech in a little while and I'm trying to get ready. I know that I'm just struggling a little bit. I'll take a power nap to enable me to do that a little bit better. Um, and the more, the better that I eat and the more that I meditate, I find the less sleep I need. So it's, yeah. you know, it, it, it's all this positive vicious circle that creates this better, better life as you go along. It's interesting you mentioned the meditation and the nap side of things. Uh, from a, well, let's, let's talk about the Churchill example again. Um, he took that nap every afternoon, and the guy did beat the Nazis. So yeah, I'm going to give him many points for that. Yeah. Uh, he also smoked cigars all the time. He had champagne every single night, and you know, just the worst diet ever, and was hugely fat and diabetic. That might have been why he needed a nap every day. Just saying. <laughs> Possibly. The alcohol <laughs> can, can might have had something a few to of do. those things, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, there's that. But then uh, when it comes to uh, the, so you had naps and there was something else you said in there. 
Um, what was meditation it? and food. Uh, there you go. So that was the food side of it, the meditation side of it. I just, geez, going back more than 10 years, I had uh, been influenced by this common stereotype. Uh, and I'm going to call it uh, morningism. Uh, it's one of the isms. And this is that people who wake up early in the morning are inherently better than people who wake up later in the morning. And I said, well, I want to be a good person. Therefore, I'll become an early riser. So I woke up at 5 a.m. every morning for two years to show myself I could do it. And that just meant being really tired for a while until I was just so tired to go to bed early. And, you know, I, I was able to do it, but I would wake up. This is before I had kids, coincidentally. Uh, and magically, I found I could replace two hours of sleep with an hour of meditation. It does work. And I would meditate for 90 minutes. I do breathing exercises and chants and I'd have some green tea before I'd have my coffee and this whole like morning ritual energy medicine. And I mean, I was on it. That said, I was less creative and less happy than when I followed my actual circadian biology, which is actually, I'm wired to be more one of the night watchmen. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I read my books later in the evening and that's where the, for me, the creative juices flow. Uh, so I don't practice that anymore. But the idea that I really could sleep less if I meditated more was real. But then once you have kids, you realize that as soon as you sit down to meditate, when you have children under five, they sense you meditating and immediately come and interrupt your meditation as part of how they're wired. So right. I gave up on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I had um, Adam jump into med uh, yoga with me the other day and he, he ended up just like doing the stuff underneath me on the mat. And eventually oh, so like, I sat down, he eventually sat down there and, and he meditated for a couple of minutes. I got a great picture of it. It's really, really cool. Um, yeah. What I've, what I've discovered now that my kids are a bit older and they're no longer interrupting me as you've, as you've said, and I'm also not chronically exhausted from having a two-year-old, you know, and the young, young kid, young kid phase is that absolutely there's a relationship between meditation when you do it right, which is not right. When you do it, when you have a good meditation session, you drop yeah. into effectively, um, non-judgment, right? So, uh, when you up, drop into alpha and in those rare states, when you actually drop into theta, there's so much recovery and regeneration that occurs in the brain in meditation mm -hmm. that is quite similar to what happens when you're sleeping, when you're in theta and then delta, which is super slow brain waves. Um, and so there's no question. I think that when we have the meditation practice during the day that you don't require as much sleep at night, which is kind of cool. I've also discovered that when I do a really good workout during the day, for some reason, especially strength training, um, I get way more deep sleep. So I get about two hours a night of deep sleep when I do a workout, which makes means I need an hour less total sleep, wow. which is also very interesting. So the more deep sleep I get, then the less total sleep I need. So in fact, when I meditate and work out during the day, which means I'm taking time from my day, um, I'm actually getting it back and that I need less sleep. So there's definitely a, a relationship there. I love sleep. I think it's important, but I also love life and I want to enjoy the time that I'm here on this planet and be awake for as much of it as possible. So that's ah. the balance that we're playing just like you are, I think too. So I, I love the balance and the perspective there. Uh, you, you talk about some brainwave states that made me really happy uh, in your book. Uh, one of the ones that that doesn't get much much attention, uh, a lot of people have heard about alpha, and, and I say this, I have 40 years of Zen is my neuroscience institute. I have two neuroscientists, you know, five-day intense programs to take you to altered states with custom-made hardware and software. So it's something I'm pretty into. And you talk about gamma. In fact, and you, you have steps in your book, and you talk about embracing the extraordinary, and you talk about shifting into gamma brainwaves for flow states. Uh, most people don't think gamma is trainable. I will tell you for a fact it is because we are doing that. 
what is your perspective on gamma brainwaves, particularly in all the other associated stuff that happens in what you call extraordinary in your book? Just walk me through that. Yeah. So um, as an athlete, you, you're trained to get in the zone so that you're non-judgmental. You act, think, feel to have the best possible performance that you can. And we know that that's a trainable state for the vast majority of people. We have random experiences with it, but we know that you can actually learn how to do it. We, we teach it through act, think, feel, which is mind, body, emotional state that you can replicate once you, once you know it's there. You can use biofeedback to get to that state as well, which is wonderful. Um, but gamma is a new one that's been explored recently in the scientific community. And it's when um, the entire brain works together at the same time. And it goes beyond flow. It gets into peak experience. And peak experience you can think of as a flow state with meaning. So let's say mm -hmm. that you are delivering a presentation and you are in flow, but the meaning just connects with the audience and you can feel yourself changing lives or you're staring um, into the eyes of a loved one and you know mm -hmm. that that connected moment is altering the course of both of your lives. Like that's that's flow plus meaning, which is peak experience. And it's in those states where gamma brainwaves are produced. Also in deep, deep, deep um, meditation and, and a few other states. But this is a bit more accessible to us in that it's moments that we can all identify with. The, the, the moment when you're with your children and they're playing and, you know, you just you see them, you're fully focused on them and you can see them you know, exploring and experiencing the world, which makes you feel absolutely spectacular as well. And a moment that I really feel like I, I experienced that almost to an extreme level was climbing Chimborazo in Ecuador. It's a volcano mm -hmm. and we were climbing all night long and snowstorm and super dangerous and hypoxic and um, like really stressed. But then at one point as we got high enough, we broke through the clouds. And so the snow stopped and we were hundreds of kilometers away from a city or town. So it was pitch black and the sky opened up above us. And I've never seen that many stars because you're at like 19,500 oh, yeah. feet. Yeah. I've got all of this. I've got the white clouds beneath me and I look up and all that I can see is the snow capped peak and like the full on stars. And I just, I remember saying, holy sh like just, and everyone in the in the group stopped and everyone just looked up. And there was this moment of silence as we realized that we were the closest humans to the stars because Chimborazo is the furthest point from the center of the earth. Um, cause the earth's a bulge, uh, bulge right. is equator. So it's 2k higher than ever, two kilometers higher than Everest not for sea level, but in terms of distance and closeness to the stars, other than the space station, the astronauts. Um, so we had this moment of realization and this moment of experience. And that was just like, I could feel everything I felt my entire life. I knew that everything that I'd done had led up to this moment. I knew that it was going to transform what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So this is the zone plus peak experience. And that was pretty magical. So I've become really interested in peak experience and gamma states and happiness and moments of joy um, that we can accept, we, that we can access and wow. try to create lives. So yeah, that's a pretty interesting state. I'm pretty fascinated by it. Greg, I, I think that ought to be your next book uh, because there's been work done on uh, on flow states. In fact, I was the first investor in the Flow Genome Project years ago. Uh, but you know, the recipe for flow is is kind of what, in fact, I think Stephen Cutler called the hippie speedball when he came on the show. He's like, well, you have some caffeine, uh, some cannabis. 
right? Some nicotine and ski really fast, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and some danger and you'll go into a flow state and you will, and it feels yeah. good. And, you know, downhill mountain biking used to do it for me. Um, but I, as you're describing that, I had it funny in the same country. I, I was uh, with part of an expedition uh, looking to climb Mount uh, Cotopaxi, mm -hmm. which is another hard to climb volcano in Ecuador. And we uh, got up to the climber's hut about uh, two thirds of the way up where you spend the night uh, and the sun was just setting. So I'm there and it's perfectly clear and you can see for 200 miles in a direction and it's just awe inspiring. I'm standing out there just kind of feeling my my peak state. And of course, the one of the guides who you know helped a, a uh, blind guy uh, summit Everest. He's like, "Come on, hurry up! You're you're gonna get cold. You got to go in there." And I'm like, "Stop! Like I'm I'm just enjoying the moment." And yeah. it it did not connect. And he's like, "He's like, what are you, some kind of hippie?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm actually, in my own kind place." Of, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about there? 100%. Like, you know, they're kind of trying to wrangle you up. There. And you're like, no, I'm gonna enjoy this. Yeah. But that state sticks. And uh, you know, the stars, uh, full moon under over Mount uh, Kailash in Tibet mm -hmm. in the Himalayas. Another one. Those are things that stick out as some of the the biggest peak experiences I've had, other than some with electrodes on my head, where you know you dissolve your body and stuff. Um, so those though, I think do involve gamma, and that's one of those brain states that. Oftentimes, uh, I will hear neuroscientists flat out tell me, you can't train that state. I'm like, that's funny, because when we put the hardware that we built on someone's head and they do it for an hour, the graph goes up and to the right. I am telling you that we're training it. We're just not training it the way you would train it. Uh, and I find that that's a real important part, maybe of some of that creative stuff that you're talking about elsewhere. Um, if uh, you know the creativity stuff is more of a theta state, uh, to be perfectly honest, mm -hmm. yeah, that's where you tap into the collective consciousness and whatever. What, though, if someone doesn't have access to tech, they don't have access to mountaintops right now. By the way, if you do have access to mountaintops, people who live at high altitude tend to not die of coronavirus. In fact, they tend to not get it almost at all. There's really interesting research about that. It has to do with, I think, hemoglobin and the way our, our cell receptors work. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, assuming we don't have access to either one of those and we want to experience more theta, that really deep relaxation, or we want to experience more gamma, do you have techniques to turn that on? So let's say you want to get into alpha, which is the reflective strategic thinking. That's just getting yourself into a location where you can read in journal. Like those are two really powerful ways of, I think journaling is probably the best way of getting into alpha because you're just reflective, you're thinking, but you're still awake. Data, you just need to get somewhere where you can stare off into the distance. Mm -hmm. That's just getting to a park. If you can find a beach and just stare at the waves, if you can go for a walk, that works wonders. Uh, if you can do what you love to do, so that's art, music, um, sports, like riding your bike will often trigger it. Um, paddling does it for me quite often. I'm a big, I'm into paddleboarding right now, and I I drop into that state easily. And then gamma is associated with the with meaning, so it requires us to think a little bit about what matters to us in our lives. For some people, that's their work. For some people, it's their hobby. For some people, it's their families. Whatever it is. Okay. And then create those magic moments. And the magic moments really just require you to be there and let it happen. So let's say you're playing with the kids in the park. You're not on your phone. You're not checking your email. You're with your kids playing in the park. If you're having dinner with your family, the devices are away and you're allowing the conversation to flow with no judgment and no you know push-pull. It's just simply experience. And when we have these magical experiences in combination with what we care about in our lives, then I think that you'll discover the peak experience begins to pop up into your life more and more and more. It's one of the reasons why I'm trying to, you know, as we come out of this coronavirus era, I'm trying to really schedule and build 
expeditions into my work because I love them. Yeah. I, I love doing it. I love going to these places. You know, at, at Christmas, we went to Galapagos with um, my family and my daughter Ingrid got into the water and we were swimming with sharks. Like, is it yeah. swimming with a 10 year old with sharks is pretty profound. You know, she had a face to face moment with a sea lion in the ocean. Pretty cool. So good. Right. So like we just and again, doesn't need to be that it can be sitting in your local park watching your kids play soccer. Um, you know, I've seen I've been in very been to 50 countries around the world and you don't, it's not necessarily money that you need to make these happen. You don't need to go to the mountaintops. Like I've seen incredible things in India. I've seen incredible things in Africa. I've seen incredible things in Central America with people doing what they love to do with the people that they love to do it with or the people that they just love. And out of that, just these sparks of magic pop into your life. And that's, I think, something we all need more of these days. It's beautiful. Uh, I've just recently said I'm going to do more expeditions because my kids are old enough that it, it's reasonable. Uh, it would have been Burning Man is kind of the annual I get you know, at least, you know, five or seven days. But I had a, a trip to Mongolia to spend time with the Eagle Shamans uh, for this mm -hmm. year and COVID shut that down. I'm like, stupid COVID. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I haven't figured out the gratitude for that. And I've got one more hack that's worth mentioning for accessing alpha and some theta. Uh, and it is something that I created. So guys, if you know, get offended every time someone cares about something enough to create it and then tells you about it, you'll have to just unfollow the show and I'm okay with that. The, the True Dark Twilight glasses, the ones that are designed for deep sleep, we have put electrodes on people uh, at 40 years of Zen. So I get access to free brainwave research, which is cool. And in about 15 minutes, most people who put those, those glasses on, including me, will shift into much higher alpha and a little while later, theta. So just the color of this works because normally when you close your eyes, you end up in an alpha state. In fact, it's the easiest way to turn on alpha, close your eyes and sit there for a minute. And if you mm -hmm. want extra bonus points, focus on a spot between your eyes and the middle of your forehead. Uh, and magically, you're almost always, your brain waves in the alpha state will go up, which is great. So you went out of the beta mode, you close your eyes, take a deep breath, you know, use your calm voice. Uh, I see you nodding, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about, Greg. Yeah. So you do that, but it turns out you can wear glasses that block all of the light that's turning on beta. So even if your eyes are open and you're looking through the glasses because you blocked all these frequencies of light, you will then experience alpha. And you're having something that normally would be kind of pathological for most people, which is called eyes open alpha. But if you're doing it for this reason, okay, you just relax. You, you kind of fell into it. You do a bit longer, you're in theta, and then you go into this weird daydreamy state, and then they knock you out, which is why they're called sleep glasses. Hmm. But those states are interesting when you weren't expecting them, and they were induced by light. So I almost want to call those, you know, my meditation glasses, but they're called true dark twilight glasses. They're the ones that are the, the heaviest duty for jet lag sleep glasses. They're the ones I wear before I go to bed at night because I double my deep sleep. So that is a bit of a plug for my stuff. But in the context of what we're talking about, uh, like if you're looking for these states and you don't want a whole bunch of tech, uh, I consider a pair of glasses to be pretty low tech. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, in fact, I will, if you're interested in that, I will send you some just because it'd be fun to see what you think about them. Yeah, we'll do a little show on that. That'd be great. Right. <laughs> Do you have time for a couple more questions? Absolutely. Okay. I want to know about high altitude hacking. I have done a lot of this myself to be able to survive and thrive in a hypoxic environment. 
what do you do when you go to these high things? You're an expert in breathing, the respiratory yeah. side of things, and an expert in high altitude stuff and exercise and endurance and all this. So you are one of those rare people who's kind of know more than me. Got it. Teach me. So uh, the, I think we did Chimborazo really well. We put two people on the summit, um, Jillian White, Sarah Thompson, both of whom did research with me. Uh, another doctor from Sick Kids came along and a bunch of his friends from Germany. We got close but did not get to the summit. I turned around at around 6,000 meters because I thought I was 50-50 as to whether or not I was going to get off the mountain. And I had a family, so I made that good, conscious good decision, decision yeah. um, which I know sometimes people don't make. But we did a really good job this time in that we um, had a very good base camp at around 14,000 feet. The summit was like 21,000. So uh, we set ourselves up at a really good base camp. We did a lot of exercise at moderate, like 14 to 16,000 feet, like just long walks in the two weeks that we were there. We found that really helped us to acclimatize quickly. Uh, hydration is one of the hardest things to do because you're constantly blowing off water. And so we worked a lot on drinking enough fluid and just continuously um, doing that. The challenge when you're up at altitude is you hyperventilate because your oxygen levels drop, which makes you hypersensitive to CO2. Then you blow off all your CO2, then you underventilate. And so you get these wicked headaches. And so we took acetazolamide this time, which helps yeah. to control Biomox. your yeah, yeah. Um, bicarb, bicarbonate levels in your blood. And we took a lot of gear with us. So we monitored our hemoglobin and hematocrit levels every single day, a few times a day, actually, until we were all at 50 to 55 percent um, red blood cells, which is a lot, like 50%, you're basically out of the Olympics, right? So like we were at the limits of what we were capable of. And we all just naturally adapted to that. But the really interesting moment of the entire trip was we did a training climb at to 5,800 meters, um, 6,000 was sort of the, and 61 was the peak. So there's some thresholds there, but we got to 5,800 meters one day on the training session. And we were sitting on the uh, the mountain having a bite to eat and all of a sudden it got dark so these clouds came over the back of the mountain and it went from warm to below freezing within mm. about three minutes and the wind picked up and the pressure dropped and so we wow. went from oxygen saturations of 85 percent which is low but fine to 65 oh. or lower which is dangerous, like legit yeah, that's, dangerous. That's bad news. I, yeah, I so there you go. Right there. I'm, okay. I'm holding up a pulse oximeter right okay. now. Uh, if you guys are watching on YouTube, but yeah, yeah. I, I track my blood oxygen. 65 is crap. Okay. Yeah, like it's weird. It's like ICU level. Yeah, okay. like you're hospitalized. If it yeah. were, if were anywhere near a hospital, we would have been thrown in the hospital. And we look all looked at each other. We we got to get off this mountain. And so, but I got tunnel vision, so I could yeah. only see literally like if I held my arm out at full arm's length, I could only see the space where my hand was. And so I stared at the boots of the person in front of me and followed them for three or four hours down the mountain as we all got ourselves off. And, you know, someone was puking. Um, like, it was bad, like really bad. Yeah, we you're lucky you made it. Yeah, it was not a good scenario. Um, there's no question. I had the most unbelievably splitting headache. I'm pretty sure I had mild cerebral edema. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't good. Anyway, so... What was really fascinating about that experience, though, is that the day after the day after and the day after that, our bodies hyper adapted. So our hemoglobin levels shot up and we were tracking a bunch of other measures as well. 
And um, we had an amazing device called an iStat with us. We were looking at, you know, all these different. Um, so jealous you got to climb with all that stuff. That's so oh, cool. All right. It was so cool. We had so much gear with us. It was so fun. Lactate as well. Okay. You lactate when you're in altitude as well. So we'd be like hammering, like going so hard and take our blood to lactates and it'd be like 1.8, which is lower than resting at sea level. Because like you mm -hmm. just simply don't produce lactate when you're in sort of this weird paradox once you get up there. Um, but anyway, that state where we were in, where we were really low oxygen for a few hours, I think triggered our bodies to hypercompensate with this massive production of EPO, mm -hmm. erythropoietin, which stimulated the growth of lots of red blood cells and dumped a whole ton of new red blood cells into our systems, which three days later, when we went for the summit, we could feel it was way easier. I mean, we went harder to climb, but like clearly we had physiologically adapted at that point in time. So we're learning, we're getting better at it. And um Diamox definitely helped and water definitely helped. And some of these training days, which were so brutal, definitely helped as well. That is fascinating. All right. Um, you want me to share some of the stuff that I've learned? If it would be sure, a benefit to you. I know listeners yeah. probably want to hear this. In fact, uh, guys, this will probably make it into the final edit on the podcast, but I will put it up as a separate YouTube thing anyway, just so we get this whole thing. Cause what you just shared is, is precious. And this is one of those weird things that certain people on earth who climb high mountains really want to know. And the rest of us are like, I'm not sure I care. <laughs> yeah. uh, what I found over just testing this a bunch is that it's not necessarily uh, an oxygen uh, breathing problem as much as I thought it was at first. And so you're a respiratory guy, so you're going to think about the gas it's really an electron problem. So you have to combine oxygen and food to make electrons. And if you lower oxygen, you got a problem there, right? So some of this I learned from the Tibetans, the yak butter tea that made me want to dance at 18,500 feet. Okay, you're supposed to feel a headache and like you want to die. And literally, I hadn't felt that good in, in 10 days yeah. at altitude. It didn't make any sense. What is up with this stuff? Well, it turns out, that water, when you put a little bit of butter fat in it, and probably MCTs, but certainly butter fat, and I know this because I funded the research at UW myself in order to, to prove this is true. Um, the reason the Tibetans take warm water and fat and they shake it up, they actually will use a butter churn, and now they'll use a little hand blender because you can get those you know, that are mm -hmm. solar powered and all. Uh, but they always churn it. They never just eat eat butter and drink tea. That's what you'd think people who didn't have dishwashers would do because it's less work. Never. The reason you're doing that is that it changes the structure of the water, um, the heat and the it's called exclusion zone, little droplets uh, of fat in the water, the area around it, the water becomes it, it, it becomes changed in how viscous and sticky it is for you to make mitochondrial energy. The first thing you do when you drink water is you convert the water from bulk water into exclusion zone water and you do that with something called infrared heat and your mitochondria make that for you. It's one of the core physiological processes. Mind blown yet? Yep. Okay, um, this is coming uh, from uh, UW and why is my brain blanking on his name? Cause he's an, an amazing guy and uh, I'll think of his name in a minute. Um, if, you, if you Google exclusion zone or easy water, you'll find him, Gerald Pollack, that's his name. He's spoken at my conference. So no, I couldn't explain why I had to blend the, the butter in the coffee to make bulletproof coffee, but this is one of the reasons. And this is why the Tibetans just figured out if you do this, well, at high altitude, there's not enough oxygen. So they don't want to have to eat their, their meager diet of barley flour and yak butter tea is, is that's all they're eating some of these days. And they can lift three times what I can lift and they're like impervious to cold and they're superhuman. So they're doing this because they don't have to make heat in their body to convert the water into the water they need to make ATP and do the other things. It's already pre-converted when they drink it. 
So what I'm seeing now at Basecamp on Everest, because people report it to me, is they're drinking Bulletproof coffee. And they're doing it because they're getting that benefit, right? They could also just take, you know, yak butter and put it in tea or whatever. But they're they're usually doing the bulletproof thing because the other thing that works at high altitude very, very effectively is ketones. And MCT oils convert to ketones. So ketones burn well at high altitude. Uh, so if you add MCTs to whatever you're eating, they are anti-inflammatory in and of themselves. And you're dealing with inflammation at high altitude as well. That's part of the headache. So you do that and then you say, okay, what else can I do to catalyze the conversion of this precious rare oxygen molecule into electrons? Because if I can do that well, I won't experience swelling and edema because edema is essentially a lack of mitochondrial function at the end of the day that causes swelling, right? There's other things going on, but that's a big part of it. Mm. So uh, then what are the mitochondrial stimulants? And well, things like D-ribose, the sugar. This is in one of the products I've made for Bulletproof uh, that I think we're still making it. Um, it was called MitoSweet, but D-ribose is a sugar you can buy that directly makes ATP. It's one of the backbones of it. Uh, Keto Prime is another Bulletproof supplement called oxaloacetate that works dramatically well. I mean, stupidly well at altitude. So like clear head, feeling like yourself at 17, 18,000 feet. It's unbelievable. And then things like acetyl-L-carnitine and all the different respiratory chain stimulants, most of them are in my book, Headstrong. I found when I do that, and I add L-glutamine, which is an amino acid, uh, and extra salt, uh, as well as potassium bicarbonate, but not too much. Man, I feel like myself when I'm there, but I also pre-train with intermittent hypoxic training, which mm. is uh, something that uh, I just did a podcast about the, the B-Strong bands. Uh, blood flow restricted training, and I have a chamber called uh, called the CVAC that's part of the Upgrade Labs. It's our atmospheric cell training thing. But just exposing the body to those things ahead of time, so you're preconditioned. I feel like I'm better equipped than I ever have been. But I didn't know about all your EPO hacks like that. So I wonder if intermittent hypoxic training is raising EPO. But I'm I'm more and now. I want to go to high altitude. All I have to do is get over a border. But yeah, well, someday we'll be able to do that as well. Um, it's interesting because I had not heard of those for altitude training. We have used L-glutamine as an immune system enhancer coming out of training camp for athletes yeah. to help keep yeah. them from keep getting sick. Um, we did a very cool study on preconditioning a few years ago in athletes, um, and that was a, a fascinating study. There's a lot of work on preconditioning that's being done for organ transplant as well. So we know that there's a molecule that's produced when we do pre limb preconditioning that then circulates throughout the body to offer um, protective effects the, the for hypoxic inducible factor alpha. Yeah. Alpha. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, an interesting. Uh, there's lots going on there and sort of um, it's a fascinating field. So I did it on, you know, had a bunch of athletes walking around swimming. It's with basically one arm that was purple because we did <laughs> blood pressure cuffed them for a while. And it was like, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing, nothing. It's fine. Just checking their blood pressure. Um, I love and we it. discovered that the French team was doing it as well. We're like, oh, they figured it out. Duh. But anyway, so <laughs> um, those are definitely areas to think about and lots of powerful stuff coming out there that we're learning about. Oh, I'm I'm so happy I got to chat with you about it. Uh, one more thing before we go, and it's something that I did years ago um, as I uh, rented a capnometer to be able to learn how to control my uh, exhaust gas. And I don't know that it did a huge amounts for me, but it probably made me more aware of my breathing. And I bought one a couple of years ago. I haven't really played with it too much since it's, it's sitting on a desk behind me amongst a stack of other biofeedback toys I haven't had time to deal with. 
but I, I did it enough to look at all the algorithms and it said, uh, you already breathe at the perfect respiratory rate, Dave, you know, nice work. There isn't really much we can do to teach you to breathe better. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, this isn't what I wanted. Uh, and I know at 40 years in, we use HRV and we actually show people this respiratory rate will create the best heart rate variability for you. It's part of our first day training so people mm -hmm. can have the right breathing while they're doing alpha and other types of brain states and you know, reset mode stuff. Um, what, uh, what is the ideal respiration rate for people? Should people consider finding a respiratory therapist to do a capnometer and figure out what breathing works for them? Like just walk me through, through exhaust gas biofeedback. Cause most people, sure. even in biohacking, this is cutting edge stuff. Oh really? Okay, cool. So this is what I've been playing yeah, with for a long time. This is, this is great. No one ever wants to talk to me about this stuff. It's so great. <laughs> um, so the easiest way to think of it is that we have chemoreceptors in our um, aorta. So the blood leaves the heart and in the aortic arch, there are sensors called chemoreceptors that taste the blood for hydrogen ions and carbon dioxide. So how acidic is the blood? Basically, it wants to know that. So the more CO2 you have, the more waste gas that you have, the more that these chemoreceptors send information to the brain to make you breathe harder. You have a second set of chemoreceptors on the inside of your, um, on your brain that taste the cerebral spinal fluid. That's sort of like the last line of defense. So if your cerebral spinal fluid is getting acidic, then it's like, you got to breathe a lot. So okay. then what happens is you breathe harder, the, the nerve, it's a, it's a feed back to feed forward loop that increases the drive to breathe. So when you breathe harder, you then blow off all the CO2 and you bring yourself back down to your set point. So for most people, the set point is 38 to 40 millimeters of mercury of carbon dioxide pressure in your blood. If it goes below that, you stop breathing or you breathe less. So if you hyperventilate, for example, and blow off all your CO2, you can sit there for five minutes and not breathe mm -hmm. because it's the CO2 will slowly build back up. Be careful your oxygen doesn't drop because then you pass out and die. So it's not something we recommend. but yeah. And that's why we have shallow water blackouts in the pool when you're trying to hyperventilate and then see how far you can swim underwater. So don't do that. Tim, Bad idea. Tim Ferriss had to pull that out of his first edition of 4-Hour Body because people were passing out and having yeah. real problems from it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, warning, don't do that. Um, so then when it comes to the optimal breathing rate, the speed with which you breathe is one thing, that's breathing frequency. And then your tidal volume, how deep you breathe is the second factor. If you multiply them together, you get volume liters per minute, and that's your total ventilation. So what we're looking for is to ventilate the lungs effectively so that you're breathing deeply, you gas exchange everywhere because there's more blood deep in your lungs than there is at, at the top. So those deep breaths are better for gas exchange because there's more gas interacting with the blood that's deeper in your lungs as gravity just pulls it down. Um, so we're looking for nice deep breaths, smooth, slow breathing. So my, bre my breathing frequency when I'm sleeping is around 14 to 15. I know that 15 breaths per minute is, is good. When I'm exercising, it's up to 60 times per minute, depending on what I'm, what I'm doing and how hard I'm going. Um, so really it's, I don't worry about it in terms of the breathing frequency. I worry about it in terms of clearing CO2, ensuring that you're oxygenated, making sure that you're taking those nice deep breaths as you're speaking to people, uh, pausing every once in a while to take those deep breaths to clean out your lungs and release the tension from your body. And it's amazing when you do that, um, the, the effect that it has on other people around you is quite profound. Yeah. And even though it feels like you're taking an eternity to take those one or two or three deep breaths, people just think you're being thoughtful. And then you calm mm -hmm. down 
and everyone else around you calms down as well. It's sort of like when you start a speech, it's okay. Like, you know, I just took a breath there, but like everyone knows you're just like, they're thinking you're just like reading your notes or something. Right. So um, I, I love it that you said yeah. that, by the way, most people, they go on stage and they just freak out and they'll never be quiet. Yeah. You want it, the crowd's attention. You know, I've been on Tony Robbins main stage and all you walk out there and, and you have that just pregnant pause. The longer you, the longer you wait, the more they lean forward. And so, it, but it's so totally. counterintuitive. So that's a, yeah. that's a secret. Only someone who's been on the stage for a while would know. So. <laughs> yeah. Just a little so, aside. So keep going. Yeah. That's funny. That's, that's cool. I'll do that someday if I'm ever on Tony's stage, but, no, um, but you, I mean, you're on big stages anyway. You, yeah. you do a lot of talking. So you, you learn that or someone taught it to you. That's cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And I, I learned it I, actually being an athlete because I remember going up and doing races where I was terrified. And those races where I, you know, looked at the cameras or, you know, looked at the stands and stuff like that. And I got too nervous. I mean, the way that you calm yourself down and bring yourself back into the zone is through breathing. It's the easiest, fastest way to control your state. Yeah. And if you can learn to do that, I mean, the, the, the direct impact is literally that you control your oxygen and CO2. And so if you're nervous, you hyperventilate, you blow off all your CO2, blood vessels in your brain contract, and you can't think. So when you slow down your breathing, you allow the CO2 to come back up, you take the deep breaths to make sure that oxygen is optimized, then all of a sudden you're getting good oxygen levels all through your body. Your CO2 levels are optimized, so your blood vessels are working the way that they're supposed to work. And it's a very, very tightly controlled system in the body. It's one of the most tightly controlled systems that we have. And it's, it's literally just these chemoreceptors that taste your blood and they keep your blood at that perfect acidity level. And that's what, that's how we do it. So pretty interesting. No one's ever asked me that before. So very, very cool. There are a, a good number of people in the audience who are going to say, oh, wait, I didn't know I could train that. And if you don't want to go to that, you know, putting uh, things in your nose and measuring what's coming out of your body, which is just to me, a fascinating little graph on the screen. If you have an aura ring, and you guys probably heard me say this before, but I like to disclose, I am an early advisor and investor in Aura, so I do have a financial incentive for telling you this. They're not paying me to tell you this, but I'm an investor, so there you go. Uh, I just believe in the tech, but it will tell you in the morning what your respiratory rate is. So mine is almost always 13.9 breaths a minute. Last night it was 14.2 because I taped my lips shut because I was playing around with uh, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. There's a whole episode of Bulletproof Radio about that, about the Buteco method. Uh, so uh, that apparently is about right. So 14, 15 is where people want to be. But if they're far either lower or higher, how much do they need to worry? So if you have a very low respiratory rate, I would be worried because that means that your CO2 levels are getting up. That would definitely be a reason to go get a sleep study done and okay. investigate that a little bit more. Similarly, if you're hyperventilating, if your respiratory rate is very high, that is a good indication to me that your body's really stressed because your nervous system is very tightly linked to your breathing and your heart rate. So if your heart rate is high, if your breathing frequency is high, that's an indication to me that your sympathetic nervous system is really activated. And I'd be like, let's just sort of investigate what's going on in life right now. Are you sick? Are you fighting off a bug? Is, are you super stressed about something? Are you worried about something? And, and dig into the mind body, because that's probably definitely something to be concerned about as well. I think it's a good indicator for us that it's uh breathing is a very good indicator for us because it's so tightly linked to our nervous system if your parasympathetic system is operating well your breathing will relax if you're super stressed your breathing's going to come up like it's tightly linked because it's it enables us to do what we need to do if in fight or flight so um okay. yeah definitely something to be concerned about if it's at the extremes there for sure 
That's good knowledge. And so many listeners have an aura ring or some other quantifiable way of looking at their respiration rate. And so it's it's worth knowing about. Uh, Greg, you're a, just a wealth of knowledge about recovery, about all these like real biohacking techniques, like the stuff we just talked about that has never in 700 episodes been covered at that at that level. Uh, and your your book, though, I think is very accessible. It's nowhere near as geeky as our conversation. I find there's something really special when someone who's a deep expert goes to the trouble to write a book that is is very accessible. So you're taking all of the stuff and, and you're making it teachable and then making it actionable. Uh, so even though it's probably one of the roughest times ever to put a book out on the market. And, and for like if you're listening to this, you probably never thought of this, but authors, we spend five years thinking about a book. We spend two years writing a book and it all comes down to this one day when it goes on the market. And it's like the Olympics for us. Like it, it really matters. And it's did the the years of effort and, and the thousands of hours of late nights, like, is this word the right word? All those things we've done for our readers, um, to have that come out on a day right in the middle <laughs> of basically a big pandemic is, is stressful uh, of all times. But it turns out, I think this might've played into your hands because a book about you know rest, refocus, recharge at a time, and that's what everyone needs the most, it might have been a blessing in disguise. So your your book is prime for the time, uh, and it is definitely readable and worth reading. And so, guys, if you want to know about this, Greg or it's Dr. Greg Wells. dot com, drgregwells.com, and the book is Rest, Refocus, Recharge. Uh, if you liked what we talked about, you should read this because you might find you need more of those things. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that that book launch on the Tuesday after everything in the entire planet went into lockdown was definitely one of the most stressful things I've seen. (laughs) You just sort of, you know, you let it go. But then it's interesting, like two months in, everyone starts realizing, okay, I can breathe. Oh, my gosh, I've got some time. Um, Oh, my gosh, I've spent time with my family, like I'm actually having dinner. And so you're right, I think that it's going to land in a great place. And I really appreciate you having me on the show and giving me a, a platform to share some of my ideas and talk about physiology because it's so cool and so fun and just blessed and very, very grateful for the opportunity. So thanks a lot. Well, you're, uh, you're, you're learning and your commitment to putting it into a usable book. Uh, they're, they're laudable and you earned your way into the show. Thanks, man. Right on. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. Hope that you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. If you did enjoy that episode with Dave, Please share it on social with your community. Feel free to drop a comment in anywhere on social media at Dr. Greg Wells. And if you want to give us a review on iTunes, that would be exceptionally helpful so that we can continue to, you know, sort of move things forwards and expand the reach for the show in this fourth season. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay well, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you again really soon.